morning everyone and welcome to the, the 40th meeting of the Economy Committee. Um, some members will be attending the meeting this morning via video conference and our witnesses today will be briefing us via video conference. The meeting will be broadcast live on uh, a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. And just to remind members to, to mute their devices by pushing F4 please. Um, so moving on then to item number one which is apologies. We have no apologies but we're expecting John Stewart a little bit yeah. later. Chair, okay. thanks. Yeah. Um, item number two then is our draft minutes, um, to, which is 2.1 in your packs. Um, there is a copy of draft minutes at page four of the meeting held on the 4th of November, of the 11th of November. Yes, sorry, that's yeah. yeah. Um, so, are members content that these are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Great. Thank you. Moving on then to item number three, which is chair's business. Um, at page 12 of your pack, there's a clerk's memo regarding the informal meeting on the 12th of November with the Law Society in relation to mediation services. Um, we had agreed to hold an informal meeting with them um, about the mediation services following a written request from the Society. So the, the briefing notes there, it was, it was quite a, a useful um, a briefing. Is there anything you want to add to that, Peter? Chair, no, it was just... Um, it, it was fairly expansive and the, the discussion um, opened up the idea of potentially looking at mediation services being applied more often to commercial disputes, particularly in the area of public procurement, where often it ends up in a court and you have to rerun a tender at significant cost and delay, whereas if you wrote in potentially a clause around mediation being uh, part of the deal, you, you might not have to end up in court. You might save a lot of time and money. So it's certainly an issue worth pursuing um, and something probably I think um, we would want to look at if we were getting a suitable legislative vehicle coming through from the minister, which I think probably will be at the start of the next year or early spring. We'll probably have something come through. So it might be a case of beginning to talk to the department about how they might apply this. So are members um, content then with that? Are there any comments or suggestions? Okay. Um, our members are content. We're going to move into closed session um, uh, by moving to item number 16 on our agenda, which is a special report on the committee's micro-inquiry into the macroeconomic picture. So if you just want to press the button, Chair. Great. Okay, members, so we're back into open session and we're moving on to item number four on the agenda, which is matters arising. Um, so, first of all, 4.1 at page 18 of your packs is a response from the Minister in relation to petroleum licensing. Um, the committee agreed to forward correspondence from the before LNG to the Minister for mm. comment. The Minister has stated the Department had similar correspondence from another source which contained many of the same or similar allegations against the Department and officials. The Department's Director of Corporate Governance is currently undertaking an investigation into these allegations and it would not be appropriate for the Minister to make any further comments at this stage. However, the Minister will provide the Committee with a further update when the investigation has concluded. If we just then move on to point 4.14, which is at page 5 of your table pack, which is a response from the Minister in regards to the DFE abuse of petroleum licensing process. This correspondence indicates that an investigation has concluded and no issues were raised around the concerns highlighted to the committee. So if um, members have any comments that they, they want to make on this at this point. No. Chair, where that leaves us is we've essentially 
let the department know everything that we know. Uh, the department has completed its investigation, um, doesn't find the allegations, um, and I suppose now we'll proceed with the um, process of assessing the applications. So that's kind of where we are. Um, and it, it might be the committee wants to think about whether we wait to see what happens with that um, before going any further. Great. Members are content? Yep. Thank you. So 4.2 then, um, at page 19 of your packs, there's a response from the Minister in relation to issues raised by LUMP. Um, the member, so I, I assume that, that will fall under that as well, under the same category as the previous. Um, the committee did have an informal meeting with the representatives of LUMP on the 15th of October and discussed their um, issues and concerns. Um, so unless there's anything further that members want to add. So moving on then to 4.3, at page 23 of your packs, there's a response from the Minister in relation to higher education COVID issues, and the committee had agreed to correspond with the Minister in regards to a range of higher education issues flowing from informal meetings the committee has undertaken. Um, the Minister has stated that the Department has worked with other relevant departments and agencies to address guidance for students, all of which has now been published on NI Direct. On the issue of advice on weekend and between term travel, the Minister has said the Department is not in a position to develop advice unilaterally. <coughs> they are not public health experts. However, the Public Health Agency has now published specific advice for students and we should advise that students should avoid any travel home if possible. The Minister has stated that higher education institutes are autonomous bodies, um, so therefore they are responsible for their own policies and procedures in relation to mental health provision. Uh, yeah, just on that. Yeah, the deputy chair wants to come in as well. Um, I think that the, I mean, I think it is a very detailed response from the minister. However, I do think it would be worth maybe having further conversations with the institutions. Um, I de declare an interest. I have a niece who's in her first year at Queens, and uh, I can say the the student experience has just been non-existent, and when you know. <coughs> People aren't doing this for free in terms of their university education. I think it might be worth having conversations with universities and um, in terms of just how they are actually delivering um, their courses and where they think there's room for improvement going forward. Particularly if it, the intention is that these sorts of restrictions are to continue until March. If you're into March, you know that's wow. nearly an entire academic year shot. So I think it would be would be worth initiating a further conversation at committee level with uh, Queen's UU, OU less so because of the nature of how they deliver um, their learning. But I think it would be worth having conversations. And the FE colleges. And the FE colleges as well. Chair, we have okay. to come in. Yep, sure. And just to also say in relation to, to the response, um, the Minister has also outlined the, the measures that are in place to assist students experiencing financial hardship mm. um, and has noted that executive colleagues hold a weekly COVID enforcement meeting and, and that the higher education was previously featured on the agenda. Department officials have also asked the Executive Office to ensure that should higher education feature again on the enforcement group's agenda that NUSGSI are invited to those meetings yeah. and that is something that the committee has obviously pressed um, for, for as well. So, um, Sinead wants to come in. Yeah, thank you very much, Chair. And um, I, I just want to make a comment um, myself. 
uh, John Lloyd uh, and Stuart attended um, a, a student deserves better campaign lunch by NUS and USI uh, last night and, and it was really heart-wrenching. We had six presentations from the students uh, and their stories were um, extremely sad to be honest with you. They've had an awful experience uh, and students uh, are not a, hum <laughs> a, a, a straightforward, you know, they're not all 18, 19 year olds. I mean, they were, these were mature students. Some of them um, own their own homes. Some of them had children, families, uh, etc and they are in dire financial straits so there, there's lots of problems there's lots of problems around their accommodation there are lots of problems around you know whether they can travel back home um etc etc and i really don't think that they have been well supported um in relation you know within within the context of, of the universities themselves but also they haven't really been clear given clear direction um by government either they're really pushed from pillar to post and um there's a lot of um washing the hands off it's not our problem but it is somebody's problem and and i think you know there there needs to be uh, a more strategic approach in how we uh, support our student communities um, we're almost two months, well, January, I suppose, towards um, the middle of January, that they will get into their second semester. Uh, and there's still no clear uh, direction of how they will be delivered their, their um, education programs uh, and how they are going to be, you know, are they going to be working from home? Are they going to be learning from home? Uh, and what impact does that have in in their accommodation, particularly those that are, have signed contracts within the private sector. I really think that, you know, they, they, we uh, as a, a committee, once we've heard um, that plea uh, and outcry that we should maybe, you know, be a little bit proactive here, perhaps get together with the chairs of the health committee, uh, the chairs of uh, the, the communities committee uh, and see what we can do collectively with the ministers in those areas so that we can have a support mechanism for those students there really are mental health issues around um, all of this as well and I, I, I felt I felt really as if we had let them down um, after hearing their dire stories uh, yesterday evening and as I say uh, Stuart and John were um, joined um, in that uh, zoom yesterday and, and they will testify I'm sure um, their uh, uncomfortableness with with um, the stories um, that are actually happening within the wider student community. Uh, and I feel that there's an onus on us now that we've heard um, that we can't ignore it. Thanks, Sinead. Um, and I suppose just, just to add, I did check out the guidance that's on the PHA website and it's a bit min minimalist in terms of, of what it's suggesting. It's basically saying don't travel home and that's about the height of it. Um, sorry, John O'Dowd wanted to come in as well. Yeah, thank you, Chair. And yes, as Sinead has said, at the event staged last night by the Student Union, the, the accounts were quite harrowing on the hardships our students are facing. And uh, again, it's worth pointing out, as Sinead said, we're not just talking about uh, the image of young single people who are students. We're talking uh, a slice of life here in terms of the age range and the backgrounds of people who are studying in our universities and colleges and are facing the consequences of the COVID-19 outbreak and the hardship that's bringing. I do and I am concerned that 
uh, the executive or the minister's letter refers to the executive dealing with students' issues through the enforcement subcommittee. This is not an enforcement issue. It's a curing issue. And the enforcement issue comes about from events in the Holy Lands, which involve some students and other members of the public uh, of a variety of age ranges. So I don't think we should allow uh, the student issue to be dealt with as an enforcement issue. It's the wrong setting for it. Uh, as I said, it has to be a curing and support issue uh, moving forward. One of the issues I did raise last night, and I think I raised this at last week's committee, we were waiting on a response to it, is access to the hardship fund, the student hardship fund. There is about £4 million left in the student hardship fund. At the height of the crisis, it was sitting around maybe £6 million. But students were telling us last night, and these are mature students were telling us last night, that it's, the application process takes about two months to be successful. And then you have to sit through a video which tells you about the budget and where to ch shop for cheap food, which I think is disgraceful. Um, cheap food is not good food. And mature adults who are running a family home, uh, bringing up children, don't need to be shown a video on how to budget for money. Uh, if they want to show videos, show them a video of where they can secure more money to, to see them through their lives. So perhaps, we, and if I didn't raise it last week, I apologise, but I would like more information on the student hardship funds, how they're run, and how they can be expanded, because if there's £4 million sitting there, and that has to be spent by March of next year, that £4 million would be better off in students' pockets, uh, allowing them some uh, leeway or leverage in terms in dealing with the, the huge financial pressures they are facing. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, and on that specific issue of student hardship, it's one I have raised with the minister previously in relation to the eligibility criteria of the hardship fund. Um, and she had indicated that she was content that um, the criteria were appropriate in terms of directing the that support to students who most need it. Um, I, I think perhaps those criteria are appropriate under normal circumstances, but these aren't normal circumstances. Um, and that we should be looking again at those eligibility criteria to ensure that that money is getting out quickly to students. And if there is a, another delivery mechanism that's needed to get that money out, then that's something that also needs to be addressed. Um, Gary, you were looking to come in. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, I unfortunately couldn't attend uh, the engagement last night, although I did uh, get an invite to it, and, and I passed on uh, my apologies. Unfortunately, we were in uh, Parliament buildings for another uh, significant piece of business until uh, early, early hours of this morning, but, but I did pass on my apologies. And, and also, uh, I've been engaging with uh, the students on the APG um, on further higher education, which is, of course, just newly established. And... Um, I've been elected as vice chair of that grouping, so I've heard from some of the students, and, and, and like them, and like all of the MLAs around the table, no doubt, we are concerned. I, I think that we do need a very clear strategy um, in relation to these issues. I think there needs to be a cross-departmental approach. Um, one of the suggestions that I was going to make was around the and the health piece, maybe the guidance in terms of as we go on to the second semester, that could we uh, maybe write to the health minister, could we engage with um, the health committee and try and bring people together to, to get some sort of clarity. And I know this is a difficult time uh, for everyone, but we need to bring that clarity about. So I think that as a committee, we do need to maybe do a bit more in that respect as well. Thanks, Gary. Um, Stuart? 
Yeah, Chair, I, I did attend that meeting uh, last night and, and agree with my colleagues that the, the, the stories were very difficult. Um, I'm not sure the Minister can entirely wash her hands of it just in this correspondence. I think also um, the universities and colleges have um, questions to answer. Um, this is not about apportioning blame at this stage, but when you hear comments like the promises that were made by the universities to bring us to university to do our courses, and then uh, how very quickly everything that was promised changed um, to online, uh, and setting aside the issue of the, of the Holy Land, which actually, in the grand scheme of things, while it was incredibly annoying at the time, has in reality is in reality only a tiny part of a very serious, much much ser more serious issue. The much more serious issue are those things that people have made reference to. It's the the health and mental well-being of students. If you're told that your course is going to go ahead um, and that it will be delivered through live lectures socially distant and all of that and then all of a sudden massive changes take place everything starts to be online um, those things are very distressing for people whether they're teenagers or whether they're they are older people attempting to to either uh, move to higher degrees or indeed coming into education at that stage uh, at a higher level I also agree with Gary that, that we very seriously need to look at how the universities and colleges are going to address the second semester. To just allow this to drag on and continue is unacceptable. And I really do think, Chair, that we need to bring all of the key stakeholders together. Um, this isn't about apportioning blame. It is actually about trying to deliver some sort of quality of, of, of education and learning uh, into the second semester. Uh, and I, I do somewhat despair that, that it seems to have passed over the heads of those that are currently... I'm sure they're working very hard in, uh, in their delivery, but is it actually working? And if it's not, then they need to readdress how they're going to do that. Universities have a big obligation to people who they said come to Belfast and have committed themselves to accommodation. It goes into the whole area around the hardship fund and all of that. So I, I really do think that we need to take some action this side of Christmas. No, I agree with that. And um, I think if we do look at perhaps, Peter, at getting the, the chairs of the appropriate committees together, if you would correspond with the yes, first sure, time, I imagine it would be sorted as quick as we can. TEO Health and Communities. And yeah. ourselves, um, and if we can maybe try and get that set up early next week, and we can then decide how we want to take that forward. As you say, Stuart, with a kind of um, cross-departmental and um, inter-institutional um, approach to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to put on record our um, thanks to the student representatives who have continued to keep this issue on the agenda so. and have been very effective in their highlighting of all of the issues. Um, and at last night's meeting, I was all, I also passed on my apologies as though I was involved in another meeting. Um, but I, I have engaged with the student unions and on previous occasions and, and know from testimonies how difficult the circumstances currently are for, for young people and people of all ages that are in higher education. So if we action that, Peter, that would sure, be... Absolutely, we'll get that sorted as quickly as possible. Okay, so moving on then to um, 4.4 at page 29 of your packs there's a response to the minister in relation to correspondence from the committee regarding a dispute between the college's employers forum and the trade union side on lecturers pay and conditions of service 
The Minister agrees with the committee members that this dispute needs to be brought to a successful conclusion as soon as possible, and it is understood both parties have now agreed a date to meet. Are members have any further comments they want to make at this point? Happy to note. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 4.5 then, at page 30 of your packs, there's a written statement from the Finance Minister in relation to the 2020-2021 um, October monitoring round and COVID funding. Um, and let <coughs> members have any comments um, they wish to make for noting. I think we did last week. We did, it's just mm -hmm. the Finance Committee resent it. Oh, so okay. we put it in the packet. Thank you. Chair, is again this an opportunity um, for us to inquire of our department because the department has been, I think, rightly criticised for handing funds back at the end of the financial year and at various stages through the year. But granted that that funding might be particularly against for a, a specific project. But I think as we fast approach the end of the financial year, we should again set down a marker with the department and see just exactly where the areas of risk are. Um, I don't want them to squander funds, but I want to make sure that money which was bid for um, is actually being uh, properly utilised and, and that we minimise the amount of return. Yeah, no. Chair, that's part of, of the process where we're engaged in. <coughs> the department members will recall that the, the officials themselves have said on many occasions they're very alive to wanting to be able to get the money that they're being allocated spent. Um, and the process does need to be directed towards making sure that can happen. The end of the financial year is not far away, and there is still a significant amount of money, uh, both at the centre, um, you know, and, and potentially having to be reworked within the department. Um, COVID has lasted longer and been much more complex than anyone imagined. I, I absolutely, <coughs> excuse me, absolutely agree uh, that it's important that the money has got out the door. By the same token, if it's got out the door too quickly or in the wrong way, when the inevitable audit office investigation Absolutely. comes along, um, ministers will end up being strung up from a lamppost yeah. for how they behaved. So I, I think it is important that there's a balance because I think the, the National Audit Office have started already and ministers in, in London are already under serious pressure because of decisions that they made. So, um, But yes, I absolutely agree. We need to get the money out the door as quickly as possible. And I know in the October monitoring round, didn't some money go back in relation to the tourism? Yeah. Yes, they couldn't spend it quickly yeah, enough because of, yeah. the, because of the issues at the time not being so, able to be open. And, and that's that is something obviously that we The other thing, Chair, was the Minister's made the point that she has bids in for meeting the requirements of those that have not been successful in getting funding. So we're looking forward to progress on that, and hopefully that will happen soon. Tomorrow, she said. Yeah, we've been self-employed. Yeah. Yeah, but another, yeah. other bids in. Okay, so then moving on to 4.6 at page 59 of your packs, um, there's a DFE report on the financial impact of the four-week circuit breaker, which we had asked for last week. And the department stated that at the height of the spring lockdown, the output in the economy was operating around 25% below normal levels where the pre-pandemic economy was worth around $42 billion in terms of GBA per annum. It's estimated that approximately 5, sorry, 5 billion of output could be lost during 2020. In addition, around 
um, 250,000 employments available to the job retention scheme and over 70,000 claims from the self-employed income support scheme. These figures are cumulative, but figures from the latest HMRC release show that uh, many employments were unfurloughed over the summer as the executive reopened the local economy. And the department has undertaken an initial assessment of the economic impact of the four-week circuit breaker and they considered that the measure is likely to impact with the possible loss of £400 million to the economy and a direct impact of the circuit breaker on around 60,000 jobs. Um, and obviously there were some caveats in, in the paper in relation to the figures. Um, so unless members have any comments they, they wish to um, make. Sorry, go ahead, Christopher. Yes, Chair, thank you. I think it, it's really important that those figures are out there and are understood by people because I, I think for the last while the prevailing narrative um, has been you know that this is essentially um, it's almost as though this doesn't have an impact but 400 million pounds over four weeks that's a hundred million pounds a week for every week that we lock down the economy a hundred million pounds less in the economy of Northern Ireland, and I think, you know, it just underscores the need to get, as in my view, and I know others may disagree with me, although I hope not, on the economy committee. But it just underscores the need to get as much of the economy as open, as safely as possible, as quickly as possible, because we we, we can't sustain this as a society. And I'm, I think it's really important that those figures are there, because. There's other sets of figures being bandied around, our numbers, etc. But you know, it's important to have these figures as well to just demonstrate the calculations and the um, quandary that ministers find themselves in in terms of having to balance one off against the other. Chair, I, I, I don't disagree with what Christopher is saying, but I think it's also about protecting our workforce. And it's not just about protecting them in the short term from pandemic, but if you look at uh, the damage that is being done in relation to mental health, if you look at the damage in relation to what's clearly going to be with us for a long time into the future, the whole issue around long COVID, um, to expose the workforce to the illness in itself causes very serious problems and, and therefore there is a balance to be struck between um, the short-term pain of uh, restricting our economy and the longer-term gain of where we go once, hopefully, um, uh, vaccines and, and other um, issues kick in. Um, I, I don't 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 um, underestimate the, the damaging effect to our economy, but equally well, we must take into account the damaging effect on, on individuals as well. Um, John O'Dowd. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, the, the debate about the economy v health are, are running in tandem, obviously has vaxxed us all for a considerable period of time, and indeed, other societies as well are, are tackling with this issue. I, I think the report from the department is useful, but like all facts and figures that we've been given over this last period of time, it deserves to be drilled down into and examined very closely just in, uh, to discuss the, the 
preparation of those figures and the research into those figures. And I haven't done that in great detail, so I'm not contesting the figures in any way, but it has to be closely examined. I think the issue, uh, the operative word in all of these conversations is safe. And I, I and who wouldn't want the economy open up again? Who wouldn't want society open up again? But it has to be done in, in a safe manner because I think there's obviously the health damage that will be uh, delivered uh, and the outcomes of that, but also long-term damage to our economy as well in terms of the costs of dealing with the, the health impact of COVID over perhaps a generation uh, when, when you look at long COVID moving forward. So like all facts and figures, uh, it deserves to be examined. The, I, I have been speaking to businesses, as we all have, over this last number of weeks, months, uh, since COVID has hit us. And it's, there's another narrative out there as well in this last number of weeks. I've been speaking to people in the hospitality sector who were prepared to close for another two, three, four weeks for a variety of reasons. One of them was support the health message. But also anybody who's any background in hospitality will know that November is the worst month of the year, perhaps followed by January. And what businesses were saying to me, they were saying, John, if you give us the money, if you get that money you promised us out the door, we can stay closed for a couple of weeks. We'll take the hit. But what we need is money. So it goes back to the previous conversation about support schemes and uh, all those things. Businesses are prepared to play their part and tackling COVID, but what they're saying quite firmly is, give us the money to stay closed. Don't promise us money. Give us the money to stay closed, and we'll play our part. And so, that's to me is is the crux to all this. If we're going to close businesses, and if we have to close businesses, we have to give them the money. All right, and then Claire. Gary, go ahead. Thanks, Chair. Um, obviously, the report does make for some very depressing and very stark reading. Um, we know that those four-week uh, restrictions uh, talks about you know having a significant impact of four hundred million pounds in the economy, affecting sixty thousand uh, individuals. That's something that should really worry us all in this economy committee. Uh, rightly so, we should be worried about health. Uh, we should be worried about education. But as an economy committee, our focus is on the economy. Um, I, I, I have to say, through my own constituency office, day in, daily, we're seeing an increase in the number of people coming and uh, asking for uh, food parcels and access to food vouchers. Uh, we know like single mothers, for example, coming forward and you know seeking advice around where can they get finance, payday loans. This is a really deeply concerning situation. And the, the mental health impact alone on someone losing their job or the threat of losing their job uh, is something not worth thinking about. So we need to take all of this in the round. Let's open up the economy safely, do it with the proper guidance and do it with a personal responsibility as well. You know, we can shut down the economy, but if people do not even take personal responsibility, that, that, that's not going to have any impact. When we reopen the economy, the personal responsibility piece is still going to be there. Um, and, and I would just urge everyone to please bear that in mind. Those figures that we've seen in this report, that was for four weeks. Don't forget in my constituency, we've had six weeks of this. Um, we're going to now see another uh, week from Friday for those hospitality uh, industries as well. So the impact of this is so severe. Uh, we're going to be dealing with it for many years to come. Uh, so we need to take all of this in the round uh, and try and uh, bring about a situation where we can open our economy safely alongside the health advice. 
Um, Claire, and just to just to remind members that Nick Claire coming in at 11, so um, we might have to stop after this item. But go ahead, Claire. Sorry, beg your pardon, Chair, couldn't unmute there for some reason. Um, no, thank you and good morning, everyone. Um, you know, like I, I agree with all the comments, um, and I think it's what what has become very clear to me, certainly from a constituency perspective, is that opinion on this is very polarised. You know, equally, I'm getting as many constituents who would nearly have us go toward a full lockdown um, compared with those constituents who recognise that this current situation and our approach to it's not sustainable, namely businesses, and it is having a very serious and significant impact on their livelihoods, which, again, has its own public health consequences. So I... I, I it can't be a competition. It has to be a balance between what we both need to do. But what was so apparent to me is that, and, and I agree with comments that John had made, people were prepared to do what was right. However, they needed to know what that right is. And I think the difficulty for many businesses was the length of time that it took for the executive to make a decision. And I'm not here to, to rehearse what happened last week. But I do think if there was any point that we were trying to put on to the executive, it would be to almost create an options paper so that we're not in a situation where there's wrangling going on. There's a case of, you know, these are the various options that I need to do and then make a decision on it in good time. Because, you know, we all know that particularly for hospitality, um, they're ordering in fresh produce they're ordering in uh, their their various alcohols and beverages and drinks and all of that and that's a significant waste of money so not only are they um, losing money from profit and, and from from sales and services but they're also losing money from the produce which they're trying to bring in and you know people are saying look if we have to close we can close just give us enough time to do that so i think if there was a message we're going to put on to the executive it is to do that and, and the other message and I, I know i sound like a broken record on this communications is key to all of this you know you, you dispel fear and uncertainty by communicating better and we're at a point now where people are so confused by the restrictions they don't know if the restrictions in august are still applying they don't know if the restrictions from 16th of october are applying they don't know if they're able to open or close because it's so ambiguous. And my kind of point of reference is always the regulations, but the regulations are really difficult to read when you have to cross-reference them over 20 amendments. You know, so I, I think... Um you know, if there was a message that I would hope this committee could take back to the executive, it would be to make your decisions quicker in good time so that businesses can actually plan and prepare and also communicate your decisions effectively, because that is what I'm hearing on the ground. And I think that's where the biggest um, issues are. So thank you, Chair. Thank you, Claire. Um, and just to, to bring the, this item to a close before we move um, to a briefing from NICVA, I think all of us agree that we would like to have the, the economy open and we, we need to do that in the safest way. But there are other things in terms of the health system that need to be there to support that in terms of the test, trace and isolate um, system. And that also needs attention, obviously. Um, that's a matter for more for the health committee, but it, these two things are very much interlinked. Um, and I think... Just, you know, obviously the, those figures are, are stark, but uh, as John has highlighted, we do, we do need to take everything in the round as well. Um, Peter, there's nothing additional in relation to that. No, Chair. Um, and our NICFA witnesses are now uh, appearing on our screen. So if members are content, we'll move to item five for them. Okay, so we're moving to item number five then, members. Um, and if we could bring Amos and Jeff into the spotlight, please. I'm, I'm telling a lie there. It's not item five. It's item mm -hmm. item fifteen. Sorry. Sorry. Item fifteen. 
Item 15. Okay, sorry, members, it's item number 15 sorry. on your um, agenda and at 15.1 there is a clerk memo at page 307 of your pack. There is NICFA presentation slides on EU funding at page 134 of your table pack. There is a statement in relation to the 21st meeting of the North South Ministerial Council on the SEUPB um, sectoral format at page 143 of your table pack. And last week um, at our committee, we um, considered correspondence from the department in relation to ESF project um, promoters in relation to funding for priority one and two beneficiaries supported by the European Social Fund, which is due to end in March 2022. The committee has written to the minister to seek details on where current EU funding sources stand and when they're expected to end. And, and today's briefing will allow us to hear from NICFA on the um, European Social Fund programme, as well as any discussion that they are aware of regarding the success of funding the Shared Prosperity Fund. So I'd like to welcome to our meeting this morning Seamus McAleady, who is Chief Executive of NICVA, and Jeff Nuttall, who is Head of Policy and Public Affairs at NICVA. So I hand over to yourselves um, to make an opening statement, and then we will um, invite members to ask any questions that they have. Thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you for the invitation uh, to come along today and present on EU funding. Uh, a few brief words from me and then Jeff is going to take you through a presentation which I think you also have in your pack. You know, In terms of when an EU funding period comes to an end and another begins over the year, it's quite a difficult time in that they're very complex negotiations and one of the things that we have found over the years is they go on for quite a long time, generally always longer than, than is expected which causes anxiety for those who are involved in the delivery of, of programmes. It's much worse this time now that the UK has left uh, the EU and the UK has proposed to put in place you know, uh, other funds uh, you know, to make up for some of the e EU funds, uh, although obviously we'll still be involved in Peace Plus and Interreg uh, uh, in the next mandate. But with regard to the Sustainable Prosperity Fund, this has been for us one of the longest running non-consultations ever. In that I spoke with the Prime Minister Theresa May back in November 2018 uh, about this and asked her directly when the consultation would begin and she confirmed before Christmas that didn't happen. I talked to her again in February of the following year and again the consultation was promised to start very soon and that didn't happen and it really hasn't happened since. Talked to Brandon Lewis several times about it, and it looks as if the issue is still locked very much in Whitehall. So organisations here, not being consulted with, not really know knowing what's going on. As I say, it increases the anxiety with regard to what the follow-on uh, might be. So I think there's a lot of extra difficulty, and we'll be happy to take questions on that after Jeff uh, carries out his presentation, which will cover all the ground with regard to these funds. So if I could pass over to Jeff. Okay. Um, so I'm going to try and share my screen here and hopefully um, you'll be able to see. Can I just check? Can everyone see? Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. So um, really just wanted to give you a flavor, um, just building on what James has said of the importance of EU funding for the sector um, and some of the concerns that, that um, the sector has been raising um, and 
um, you know, what we think, you know, some of the, some of the potential gaps might be. So um, this fairly busy slide really just gives an overview of the importance of EU funding for volunteer community organizations. And um, from our ruling program, State of the Sector, our research program, um, which looks regularly at the income the sector receives. We looked at European funding uh, and the most recent figures were that around about 17.7 million per annum is received by the sector. But we know that that's a significant underestimate because there are quite a few programs where it's, it's very difficult to extract the amount, the proportion that goes to voluntary community organizations as opposed to public and private. So we know that, that that's definitely a significant underestimate. Um, and I think we'd always say that what's important is not just the, the quantum of money, but what it funds and how it targets needs. So all of these European programs, European Social Fund and others, um, are part of European-wide strategies um, to target particular needs. And there's really four key programs um, that, uh, that are of particular importance. The Rural Development Programme, meeting the needs of rural communities and also environmental work. European Social Fund include, uh, for the inclusion of vulnerable groups into the labour market. Interreg for the needs of border communities and cross-border collaboration um, right across the board, be it in health, environmental uh, or tourism cooperation. And then Peace, um, the Peace 4 programme most recently uh, for Peace and Reconciliation. Um, just wanted to say that those are not the only programs and there are a number of other key European programs that um, are also, um, uh, their future is either um, not good or uncertain, um, but just to, to highlight um, a number in particular, the Erasmus Education Training and Youth Work Exchange Program, which just to give you an example, uh, brought 28 million to Northern Ireland in 2017. Um, is an important source and the future of it is, is completely uncertain. Um, there's an example just on the right there of a, of a project that supported over 300 volunteers uh, through the European Voluntary Service and also the European Solidarity Corps, which the UK government said it won't, but it won't continue with, brought 800,000 euros into Northern Ireland organisations, voluntary community organisations in 2020. Uh, and there are others like Life Plus as an environmental program, Horizon 2020 for research. Um, I think the key concerns of the sector, um, the lack of clarity, is, as Seamus said, the incompleteness of plans to replace EU funding programmes, and in particular, the UK Share Prosperity Fund, which, as Seamus said, there's been no consultation, no public consultation, really after three years of waiting. The focus is unclear, a lot of talk about it focusing on the UK industrial strategy, but not really knowing uh, or having detail on what that means yet. And also the delivery mechanisms. And I think a key issue is the uncertainty as to whether it will be devolved um, in the way that your previous programs that it's replacing will be, or will it be a centrally controlled competitive fund, more like city deals? Um, and again, there's a lot of anxiety around that. And time is really running out because in the past, European programmes, which run for six years, have taken a very long lead-in period to, to develop. So we, we are really running out of time uh, to develop something substantial to replace them. Um, 
In particular, on the European Social Fund, um, it's a fund that's uh, benefited over 77,000 people in Northern Ireland to integrate for social and economic integration. And just to give an example of one organization in our sector, Action Mental Health, um, it's uh, through the through the program currently, it's on track to support 2,450 very vulnerable people uh, furthest from the labor market. Um, and uh, the a number of the organizations that receive European Social Fund that we support developed a paper um, uh, calling for transitional funding through the current mechanisms to allow time to develop a replacement. Um, and there's a lot of concern that, uh, as I say, we're running out of time to develop um, and there may be a, a, a hiatus between the current program and something that replaces it. Um, on the Peace Plus program, which will replace the world, uh, sorry, the um, Peace program and Interreg, I think uh, we, we've carried out a large consultation and there's a link to our response. Um, I think the key concern there is to make sure that it genuinely is still a special program for peace reconciliation in 2020 and doesn't become uh, something which becomes a, a top up to mainstream government budgets. Um, especially at a time when we know budgets are under pressure. Um, so just to kind of summarize the kind of key gaps that we see potentially opening up here post-Brexit, um, the uncertainty over whether the UK Shared Prosperity Fund will genuinely fill the gaps previously filled by the European Social Fund and the Rural Development Programme, uh, whether Peace Plus will be able to meet all the needs for peace building and cross-border collaboration given the pressures. Uh, and then the known losses like the European Solidarity Corps for volunteering, which we know um, at the moment is not um, going to be continued. Uh, and then a range of other programs that uh, like Erasmus that we're still uncertain. Um, and I think in the current UKE negotiations, um, there is no sense that we're gonna get answers to that or that they would form part of a deal if one is done before the end of the year. Um, finally, just to say that this is happening against the backdrop of the COVID-19 crisis and just to say that we've, we've just completed the seventh COVID impact survey on the sector uh, and it's shown pretty stark impacts on, on the loss of income for organisations already. So two thirds of organisations that we surveyed have lost services and those services will affect thousands of of beneficiaries in turn. More than one in 10 have already made staff redundant and nearly one in 10 are saying that they think their organization may not survive. So it's a stark background to this. And I think it reinforces the need that the, the crisis funding that, that's been received is, is very welcome. But I think the strong message is longer term strategic funding is what's needed. Previously, European long-term programs have provided one form of that, and obviously they're leaving a, a funding and a policy gap. So I think the key, the big message we'd want to leave with you is, is the need for um, a strategic long-term support to meet those needs that um, European funds have previously met. Thank you. Thank you very much for that overview and for the additional information there in relation to the impact of COVID on, on the sector. Um, that, that is useful for us to have as well.
Um, I guess my, one of my, my first question to you was going to be, had you any more information on the European Social Fund or the Shared Prosperity Fund than we do? But um, I, I guess that is an area that has been a considerable concern for us and we've been highlighting for, for quite some time with all of the relevant Westminster committees and, um, and ministers as well. And obviously we're, we're getting to, to near the end point here in terms of the negotiations and, and the lack of clarity in respect of that is concerning. I know it's something the, the finance minister has a particular focus on as well. Um, I, I just have a couple of questions then. Um, in relation to the European Social Fund specifically, has there been a commitment to match that that Bought of funding from the from the British government, um, not just as overall within the, the shared prosperity fund, um, and in relation to the point that you made about the transitional funding, has there been any feedback or response to that? Okay, uh, I think maybe if I, if I answer so the first point, if I if I understand correctly, um, uh, you're asking, uh, you know, is there has there been a commitment to meet the same? level of funding as ESF previously. Um, no. There certainly have been statements by UK government generally about um, that European funds overall should um, meet the same previous levels, but there's no detail on any of that. Um, and so I think there's still a big degree of uncertainty. Um, the second point, um, if you can just, sorry, could you just remind me of the the traditional funding piece that you mentioned, has there been any yes. feedback or um, response to that? Well, certainly the, the, our, um, the, the ESF users group that NICFA supports, it's around about sort of 50 or so organizations. We developed um, a paper wrote to the economy minister and have been engaging with the department officials uh, and highlighting the need for a transitional program. Um, I mean, to date, there hasn't been a commitment to that. Um, so, but we're in kind of, fairly constant dialogue on the issue at the moment. But as I say, there's a lot of concern amongst organizations delivering services that, uh, you know, the longer we wait without any clarity on whether there's a transition and when the new program will be available, um, I think the anxiety is growing. Um, thank you for that. I'm going to hand over to some other members for questions. Here, your first. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, and again, my, my questions are really—they're all all the questions this morning are going to be in the, in the, in the similar area about uh, how you deal with the uncertainty around the shared prosperity fund, um, what the prospects are for if that fund is is made clear to us by the end of the year, uh, how. Uh, it could possibly be rolled out. But the other question I want to ask is, all of the various European funding streams that come into Northern Ireland, do they all, do they all end at the same time or, are there, or, is, or is there a timeline that runs through those so that we can sort of work our way through how they can be replaced and at what stages they're coming to an end? Well, generally, there, there, there's a they, they come in six-year cycles. So the structural funds programs, the the rural development program, the European Social Fund, Peace and Interreg, are on those six-year cycles, and so they are all essentially coming to an end at a similar time. Um, there's there's usually a spend-up period of two to three years after after the end of the 
the program um, commitment period. So some of them are happening at the same time. So Peace Plus is is looking to be a, a replacement for Peace and Interreg, but the UK Shared Prosperity Fund is is intended to replace ESF and the Rural Development Programme, who are on the same cycle. The other ones I mentioned, like Erasmus, European Solidarity Corps, much less certain. Um, we could be in a position like countries like Norway that make a decision to buy into these to these. Um, and given that they're not being given a priority at the moment, there's no time scale for that. It's outside the negotiations. So I think uh, um, with the structural funds, there is a, a cycle. Um, there's concern that UK Share Prosperity Fund may be falling behind that cycle. I think Peace Plus is probably the only one that is um, trying to be in place in time to pick up from that cycle. Um, if, hopefully that answers your, your question. If I could, if I could pick. If I could pick up maybe on the shared prosperity one, because it's causing clearly the most confusion uh, and anxiety. And as I say, uh, when we talk to our colleagues in England and Scotland and Wales, uh, they have little information either. Although there are uh, some rumours that there might be an announcement on the fund next week. 25th of November was mentioned and, and no consultation. So we don't actually know uh, what the government will commit it to fund. Uh, that's the, the first point. The second bit is that in the internal market bill, you know, it's our understanding that government centrally could take control and could deliver a fund uh, like this, whereas the activities that are carried out under ESF are, are certainly matters that are normally devolved. You know, they're devo devolved issues, but it looks as if the, the government could de deliver this centrally. So there's two, two issues there. And I put that to the Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, uh, asked him about it and asked him when there'd be a consultation, asked him when things would begin to roll out. And he thought, he didn't know about consultation, but he certainly thought that Shared Prosperity Fund would be, as he described, feathered in. So it would begin to start to spend, he reckoned, uh, springtime of, of next year. But again, we're not quite sure what any of that means. So. Um, the, the, the two areas that, that there's particular concern around, uh, both Erasmus and, and the European uh, Solidarity Corps, which we know there, there's very clear signals will not be uh, continued. Um, if it's possible for the UK to buy into those, as you've suggested, other non-EU states do, um, there's clearly going to be a gap between the end of those projects now and any campaign to either, because we've no idea whether the government is interested in them, let alone whether they're prepared to buy in and there'll have to be negotiation over the price and all of that. There will be a massive deficit in the people who would normally and naturally have flowed through that. Um, I think that's a major area for concern. You, if I could just come, come in on that, Seamus. Um, I mean, I think, you, you know, we would agree that there is a, a, a real danger of a, of a gap. And I think the problem with a gap in those programmes and others is organisations are, you know, many of them are geared up to deliver these types of activities and if there's a, a significant break their ability for those organizations to keep doing that is severely hampered as well 
uh, you know, they, they are delivered through their own staff and volunteers as well. So um, uh, the ability to to be able to to continue to, to take forward those sorts of activities um, is also impaired. So that even uh, it isn't a quick, always a case of just picking up where they left off. Yeah, I think it is gap. A gap like this really promotes inefficiency and ineffectiveness. Uh, you know, when you when you bring a program to an abrupt halt, uh, introduce a new one sometime later. Organisations have you know moved on. Sometimes they've had to make people redundant and things like that, and then they may be asked to start something very similar. So it just promotes inefficiency, ineffectiveness, and is a complete waste at times of of good public resources. Chair, just finally, uh, in, in respect of both of those programmes, the people who participate in them generally tend to be at a particular stage in their education or their development or their career path. And there's going to be a group of people who will simply not have had that experience because you can't go back into that experience. Mm. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, we'll agree. <laughs> I know. Um, thanks, Stuart. Um, can I just ask, in relation to particularly Erasmus, but also Horizon and, and things like that, has there been conversations between yourselves and the Irish government? Is something that, that we have consistently raised with them um, about the potential for support coming from them for those projects through the, the Good Friday Implementation um, Committee? Um, maybe I could just come in. I suppose the short answer is I'm not aware of a lot of conversations in that area. One one area I know some organisations have been investigating with the Irish government is the continuation of the European Solidarity Corps through the Irish government. But um, all all I can really say is that, that that's an idea that's been raised. Um, on the other on the other programmes, I, I couldn't comment. Um, Donald Dowd, <coughs> bring John into the spotlight, please. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Seamus and Jeff. Um, given that the, the, the trade talks are uh, coming to a conclusion one way or the other in, in the next number of days, and we're all experienced observers of negotiation in this part of the world, and things can take twists and turns. Well, in terms of the macro politics, if those trade talks are unsuccessful, where does this leave uh, this European funding? I think, I mean, I think that it leaves the whole thing in quite a lot of difficulty, and uh, especially if those trade talks break down and there's a lot of animosity. Uh, you know, I, I think that at the very least, John, we'd be looking at delay well, more negotiation takes place, uh, you know, and, and all of that. So I suppose from our point of view, it can only muddy the waters uh, even more with, you know, with regard to, to some of these programs. You take peace plus, but at least we think there's an absolutely full-on commitment from the European Union, from the United Kingdom government and the government of Ireland. So, you know, that's probably fine, but you would wonder, you, you know, you would worry about other things. And if it doesn't come to fruition, Seamus, what sort of scenario are we looking at in terms of job losses, scheme losses, investment loss? Well, uh, 
Jeff, Jeff pointed out some of the numbers there that are involved, the amounts of money and the delivery of programs. The delivery of ESF programs, significant number of people, some people employed in organizations like Action uh, Mental Health and organizations like that. Delivery of services to, uh, you know, people with uh, educational needs, uh, mental health issues, uh, people with disabilities, and those who are furthest away from, from the, the labour market. It does leave the Northern Ireland Executive with a big public policy issue that it has to address, however it might, it might fund that. And if, if Shared Prosperity Fund is not clear and is not moving into that realm, then we would have a real problem. And a lot of, certainly our organisations, as you know, we don't operate with huge surpluses. We quite often do not operate with, uh, with big reserves. So the impact is always immediate. You know, we very, very quickly find organizations having to make people redundant, cut down their capacity and try and survive as, as, as an organization. So very detrimental potentially. Okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Um, Gordon? Thanks, Sharon. Good to see you again, Seamus and uh, Jeff. You mentioned about community groups, and I think we're all very familiar with community groups that are active within our own constituencies. Do you see them suffering heavily from the loss of funding? And is there a major gap that will appear because of, of what is proposed in relation to the groups that operate and have been there now for, for many years, uh, actively within our, our own communities? Good to see you as well, Gordon. And uh, our sector, when you look across all the different types of organisations, they're all funded in many, many different ways. Yeah. And in terms of the impact of COVID, you find that those organisations that have fundraised quite a lot from the public, they have been hit really hard. A lot of those fundraising activities have, have stopped. There's been significant support uh, in terms of grant support and contract support from government departments and other agencies, and that has been very welcome uh, in making the need. But there's little doubt that there's huge pressure on voluntary and community organisations, and that's what our surveys show. Uh, there are a few that are doing very well in the circumstances. So every piece in the jigsaw, like this, the one we're discussing now, uh, has an even bigger impact when you consider all the other problems that, that are there. Uh, as well. And as I say, when we reflect on past changeovers of programs, they've always been difficult, they've always taken more time, but now we're even in a, in a much more complex uh, arena. So the potential for damage is great. Uh, and I, I suppose what we hope is that there's agreement next week uh, in terms of trade, and we hope that there's a follow-on agreement on all these other issues, and that we can get some sort of stability as we start to head towards the new year. Local government obviously have had a key role in supporting a lot of these groups, but they're not in a good position at the moment. I suppose that's another risk and a concern. Unfortunately, a lot of them are deficit building up because of restrictions with COVID and the lack of income. So that's probably a risk too as well that needs to be identified and addressed. I mean, that is definitely the case. I mean, uh, a lot of income sources, as you say, in local government has stopped, footfall stopped, activities have stopped, 
And it's the same for a lot of voluntary organisations as well, particularly those involved in social enterprise. Those activities stopped and therefore it's another source of income uh, that, that goes. Uh, Department for Communities has provided additional assistance to councils and particularly in the area of support to community organisations and, and that's helpful. Uh, but there's no doubt all around this is a very difficult situation. Yeah. The Rural Development Programme, I had the joy of serving on some of the partnerships and no doubt they've done a lot of good work. And again, DERA are, are involved. What about continuing these programmes with support from DERA? Is that a likelihood? But obviously they need a partnership arrangement. And that's probably where the gap still needs to be addressed. Jeff? Yeah, yeah if I can maybe come in. Um, I mean, I think there is a lot of thinking which needs to be done to replace the space that, that the Rural Development Programme fills because it, it really cuts across rural community activity, yeah. environmental activity, um, supporting you know business. the rural economy. Yeah, business uh, support, yeah. Uh, Yes. So, um, uh, you know, along with programs like Leader as well. Um, so um, there's a whole architecture of European programs looking at, you know, right across the kind of rural society, economy and environment. Um, and, the, you know, the, as we said before, these programs, as you'll know, take a long time to design, negotiate and then put in place. And there's a whole strategy behind them. So, um you know, obviously, it'll fall to DERA to, to pick up those conversations with rural business, um, agriculture, rural communities, and also environmental organizations. And I know they are they are doing that. Um, but again, um, with the uncertainty around the UK Share Prosperity Fund and the actual money that's going to be available, um, I think it's, it's quite pressurized. Okay, thanks very much, gentlemen. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Gordon. Um, thank you very much for, for your presentation this morning. It has been useful to us, um, and we will be continuing to, to put whatever pressure we can on to get further information and obviously be keeping an eye to any potential further details that come out over the next week. Um, that date was used to us. Thank you, now. Thanks again. Thank you, Chair. Thanks to the committee. Thank you. Bye now. Okay, and members, we are going back to um, matters arising. Um, we had got to four point um, seven. Seven. Four point seven. Yep. So, uh, page ninety-two of your pack, there's advice and guidance from the department in relation to coronavirus advice for students in higher education, and then at, pay, at four point eight, <coughs> page ninety-eight of your pack, there's advice and guidance. Uh, um, in relation to students in further education. Obviously, we have discussed this at length in, in, in our, our previous um, item, so we'll be taking the same, same action in relation to these points. Um, 4.9 then, at page 101 of your packs, there's a clerk's memo from the PAC to the clerk of the committee in relation to the acknowledgement of the committee's intention to step aside in the interest of primacy to the um, NI Audit Office report. PAC will undertake to keep the committee appraised of progress um, on the inquiry and the likely publication date of the PAC's report. So that's to note unless members have any additional comments. Great. If members can still hear. I'm sorry, but just... 
Um, so 4.10 then at page 103 of your pack, there's a response from UK Finance and I committee in regards business accounts. The committee had agreed to correspond with um, the Finance NI Committee in relation to um, opening of new business accounts, which the committee had noted are required for applicants to be able to avail of some of the COVID-19 related um, support from the business, or sorry, from the British government. Um, the latest figures from the British Business Bank show that 33,645 businesses in the North have been offered over a billion in support through the bounce back loan scheme up until the 15th of October. Some banks have decided to focus on processing outstanding applications through the UK government scheme and or to prioritise the needs of existing customers. To do so, certain information is required for identification and to comply with the anti-fraud measures. It's estimated that these industry controls have um, stopped over 27,000 potentially fraudulent applications for over a billion of support to date. Recent FCA guidance has highlighted the heightened risk of fraud associated with new customer applications and has asked the industry to remain vigilant in this area. This means that a number of new customers may um, face delays or encounter difficulties when trying to apply for a business account. Um, members might have some comments they want to make on this, but I was going to suggest that, um, that we seek to get a briefing. Yeah. That's what we're, we're working towards now that we have opened up the relationship, is do what we did with the um, Association of Insurers yes. and bring them in just, just to have, I think, rather than back and forth correspondence, it's, it's time for discussion um, on a lot of these issues um, and making the, you know, the, the point that the committee has heard a lot from stakeholder groups. So, you, you know, you have that um, set of personal stories that I think is probably what they need to hear now. So we're working towards getting a, a briefing on that. Yeah, we are, sorry. Um, thank you. Okay, so members content with that? Yeah, great. Okay. Right, thank you. At 4.11 then, at page 105.5 of your packs is a response from the FE Principles Group in relation to COVID-19 and information collection. The response indicates the department are collating information from staff and students who report that they have tested positive from COVID-19 from the 1st of September and FE colleges provide them with fortnightly updates. Um, so are members content to note? Great. Moving on then to page 106, there's correspondence from Brian Donaldson. Sorry, Sorry go ahead, John. This is the last piece of correspondence. If the department's collating the information, can we get the information from the department? Yeah, absolutely. We put that in our readout. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, so page 106 of your packs is correspondence from Brian Donaldson, the spokesperson um, for Excluded NI in relation to the newly self-employed scheme, who, uh, or sorry, the newly self-employed people who have not been able to receive support. He's highlighted to the committee that having spoke with HMRC that a newly self-employed person would be eligible for a scheme if they have submitted a tax return early and stated this would give the department the proof to help develop this scheme for people and take away the risk of fraud. Um, I think he has corresponded with the department. He has. Also. He's copying us into everything he's sending to them, Chair, so the department has this. But unless members have further um, comments, we obviously know that the Minister intends to bring the paper and the newly self employed scheme to the Executive tomorrow. tomorrow. Oh. 
um, at 4.13 then page 4 of your table pack there's a response from the Minister in relation to um, higher education students travel over Christmas. The Minister has stated that it's her firm view that any issues relating to travel for students as they would be for any other members of the public are a matter of public health. Any such advice and guidance must therefore be provided by the relevant health authorities. Um, in the addition, the Minister has made this case both to the Minister of Health and her executive colleagues. Obviously, again, we have um, addressed with the, this issue along with the previous item, so um, we'll be taking that up similarly. Um, at 4.15 then, sorry, 4.14 we've already dealt with, so 4.15, page 6 of table pack. Um, joint correspondence between the Minister and the Minister of Education in relation to the transition of young people into careers, 14 to 19 project. On the 24th of March 2020, the Ministers wrote to the Committee to update them on the temporary suspension of the project due to COVID-19 and the need to redeploy staff to business critical tasks. Um, members will be aware that the transition of young people into careers project has now been reinstated um, and this will have an important impact on DFE and DE strategies, including the skills strategy. So um, if members are content, we will seek a briefing from the Department. Great. At 4.16 then, page 7 of Table Pack, um, there is a departmental response in relation to funding of the UU Belfast campus. At our meeting on the 30th of September, the committee received a briefing from the department on October monitoring round. Members had agreed to ask the department to provide more detail on the funding for Ulster University Belfast, focusing on the um, de-escalation of risk and how that will work. Um, this obviously now falls to the PAC, PAC as part of their inquiry. So are members content to forward the response to the PAC? Yes, thank you. Um, page, sorry, 417 then, page 9 of table pack. Departmental response in relation to a forward request from um, the ERA committee on the overlap of business. At its meeting on the 14th of October, the committee considered correspondence from the ERA committee on the overlap of or committee business on EU exit matters. Members agree they would like a further update on the trader support service, the readiness of the goods vehicle movement system and the good new movement reference due to go live on the 1st of January. So are members content to share that update with the ERA committee? Yeah, right. Thank you. Um, for 18 then, at page 12 of table pack, um, there is a department response in relation to more information from Invest NI on the recent uptake of... Um, ongoing COVID-related support schemes. At its meeting on the 14th of October, the committee received a briefing from InvestNI regarding the uptick of the recently announced schemes and members had agreed to ask for updated figures. So those are for noting, unless there's any further comments. Thank you. Um, 419 then, at page 13 of your table pack, there's a response in relation uh, from the department in relation to assistance from tra for travel agents. At our meeting on the 14th of October, the committee considered the response to the department regarding NIE travel agents. Um, the committee agreed to request a further update as travel agents didn't receive assistance due to multiple premises. Um, have members any comments they want to make in relation to that? Lots of businesses seem to have fallen down on that basis in terms of multiple premises. Um, I mean, I have, I'm sure we all have, but like I have in my constituent fella that I don't want to name the store, but he's a basically manager of like four yeah. of the set, but they're you know they only got the one payment. One, yeah. um, even though they're you know in South Belfast, they're paying top-notch rates, you know. Um, so um, 
it's not confined, as opposed to the, the travel sector, this? Okay, this is one, um, goodness, it goes right back to the beginning. We've That's been right. writing on this one since the very start. Um, and various responses have come from various ministers. And th there have been some comments recently that have suggested that it may now get another look. Mm. Um, because it's one that hasn't hasn't really gone away, and it's yeah. it's it's causing a particular kind of hardship to what are very viable, uh, yeah. thriving or worth thriving businesses. Obviously, things are difficult at the minute. So, hopefully, this is something we're going to see addressed. But the com the committee has put a lot of pressure on the executive. Just related to that, in terms of consumer rights and what have you, lots of people maybe booked stuff in sort of April, March, April, thinking, oh, this will pass. Clearly it hasn't. Are they entitled to full refunds? That's a very good and complex question that depends on a number of factors, um, including insurances, um, the types of contracts that they've gone into. This is one that's pretty much being unpicked on a constant basis. And I think probably a couple of months ago, um, things started to change in the there was more of a, an understanding that this wasn't going to be short term mm. and that where people didn't need to book far in advance that they shouldn't and wouldn't. Um, and it's, it's one of those issues that is continuing to evolve and you, you just about get a solution to one problem. And another one emerges. And then another bigger, slightly different one arrives on the scene. But I think... Generally, the way this is being approached is that advanced booking of any kind is, is probably not a good idea until we find ourselves in a position where uh, either there's a vaccine or we have other systems in place so that we can say, yes, we are bringing down this and we know how to presently, stop it spreading. Presently, it's, it's down to... Per, I, mean, I, have, I mean, I know people that are going to glance or audience stuff, so presently it is down to personal choice. Yes. So the, the argument, presumably, from the company will be, well, look, you're, you're, you're making the personal choice not to go, and, yeah, okay. No, that's fair enough. Here, I think the last paragraph there is, is a good summary. I just had time there to read it, and you can see that there is still a push on to try and get them some funding. Yeah. Uh, the first Deputy First Minister have been involved, have met with representatives, mm. and have recognised that they've been severely hit. When you think about it, travel has been so restricted... It's bound to have had a huge impact on them. <clears throat> the multi-site thing has rattled on, as you say, Peter, since we started this. It has, yeah. You know, and a lot of us have a lot of sympathy for it, but it never seems to have really got off the grid very well. And there are other ones, but I think... They keep mentioning that rates is an issue. You know, they've already got rate support. Mm. The furlough scheme has been there for staff and so on and so forth. I understand there was a judicial review taken, which was dismissed a number of the larger retailers which to me is unfortunate but that's where we are but I do see some hope here in this last paragraph so we'll just keep the pressure on and, and we'll keep trying to influence those that we are in contact with to make sure that the issue is addressed. Chair, the, the Minister has talked this week and some of the responses she's given at various points in the Chamber about revisiting um, previous schemes with yeah. the um, Reflecting on the fact that there's now a new pot of, of funding available, um, that the executive is going to revisit 
things they've done before, where it worked, where there are gaps. Um, I suppose now we've had a we've had a, a length of time where a, a gapping and mapping exercise can be done. So I don't want to create another false dawn because I think I've probably done that before. But there is more talk now about filling those gaps. So I think yeah. if we look at what's likely to be announced in the next couple of weeks, hopefully that will start to address those issues and those raised by excluded NI. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, so move on then to 4.20 at page 16 of your table pack there is a response from the Minister for Finance um, in relation to impact of COVID-19 restrictions and extended um, coronavirus job attention scheme. So that's to note unless members have any additional. Um, 4.21 then at page 19 of the table pack there is correspondence um, from the Minister for Communities in relation to the impact of COVID-19 restrictions on students living in HMOs. At our meeting on the 21st of October, the committee agreed to um, write to the Communities Minister to highlight issues around houses of multiple occupancy. The Minister has indicated that it's outside the, the scope of her department to intervene where there are contracts and assistance may be sought from Belfast City Council. Um, so that's to know also as members of any additional comments. So moving on then to 4.22, at page 21 of the table pack, there's correspondence from the British Retail Consortium in relation to trouble with borders the um, NI Retail Consortium article, so it's just for members to, to note, they've probably already seen it. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. at um, 4.23, page 24, we'll pack this correspondence from LAMP in relation to requesting to brief the committee. So we have um, dealt with that. Yeah, Chair, what I would suggest is uh, that the committee wait to see now what the department is doing before they go anywhere else. Okay. Members content? Thank you. At 4.24 then, page 25 of the table pack, correspondence from Ulster University in regards to a number of COVID-19 cases and how information is collected. The response indicates that UU has established the Ulster University incident management team to carry out the duty of contact tracing and collection of data. So um, that's similar, I suppose, to what Queen's have yeah. been doing. Yeah. Are members content to note? Yes. Great. Okay. Okay. So moving on then to item number five, where three are um, matters arising now. There, there is a departmental briefing um, on Project Stratum. Um, page 108 of your pack, the Minister's update on Project Stratum, um, that the, the members will now be aware the corporate governance and internal approval process have been complete and the contract has been issued um, for um, award and the department will be respecting the, so the contract has now been announced to um, Fibus Networks Limited and we have received just last night uh, an embargo briefing paper. Um, some members have any points they want to make on that? Obviously very welcome to have this contract yeah. um, finally announced. Um, very important project to have rolled out and, and particularly for our rural communities that for a very long time have face deficits in terms of broadband access and obviously Project Stratum, um, I think something like 79,000 premises will be connected and 97% and of those are, are classified as rural so it will be transformational for, for many rural communities and I, I hope my, my postcode is included. But <laughs> <laughs> Figures look impressive, Chair. Yeah. Uh, Gary, you wanted to come in? No, no, it was just to echo those words, Chair. Um, obviously, it's very, very welcome news, particularly for our rural communities. Um, my own constituency, over 3,500 
properties should benefit from this scheme. So I think that would be very welcome. Um, COVID-19 has no doubt uh, created a greater emphasis for the need for uh, full and effective broadband. It shouldn't be a luxury uh, in Northern Ireland. You know, everyone should have uh, access to, to full and uh, high-speed broadband. The supplement's very much welcome. It would be remiss of me not to obviously recognise the fact that you know, £150 million of that came from the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Here, here. And I think that we acknowledge this as well. <laughs> Go ahead, Gordon. Thanks, Chair. I would uh, endorse what has been said. A couple of things. Um, it's obviously very welcome, and I wonder will it affect this building? Perhaps we'll get a bit of an opening. <laughs> we, we are quite, quite rural here at the age of my constituency. Yeah. You see, if you travel a mile up the, the Craig Antlet Hills, your, your phone will drop out, and people, small businesses up there suffer as well. But uh, we do welcome the investment. A couple of things. It's a big uh, project. I think we should get a regular update on it, on the yeah. progress. We did have a bit of a briefing initially. We didn't get an awful lot of information because the contract was out at the time. Yeah. Yeah. To me, I understand it was like a design and build type contract. It was up to them to come up with the, with the requirements. So I would worry about, about risk in relation to it and how it's going to be managed. There's been a poor history about managing this type of project before. I'm talking about um, a previous programme before my time, but it used to be talked about in early stages. I forget the name of it, but uh, it's important that it is properly managed and held, everyone is held to account. And um, another thing I would like is a contact for us, MLAs, to, con to get progress. Yeah to ask questions for on behalf of constituents. I think it's important we get that. Peter, if you could organise yeah, that, please. Do that, sure. with, obviously, with the department or even with the, the contractor would be useful. But it's going to be a big issue, and we you know, realise how important it is already been said, and you know, everyone should have the right to a reasonable service. And we get it even within our constituency. It's a variation. It varies so much the level of service there yeah. seems to be. Uh, disputes about who can get it and who can, and it's, you know, I think that needs to be addressed and levelled out. So, we look forward to that. But I think regular briefings on how the whole project manage, I think, is also important, Chair. Um, thanks for that, Gordon. And yeah, I, I agree that we should get those regular briefings. Um, I, I think one of the things that I thought was quite positive about um, the the way it is supposed to be rolling out is that that they have done that pre-work and that. It, they intend to begin to roll out infrastructure immediately, and there is going to be, I think it's over six and a half yeah. thousand premises within six months. It looks very organised. That's it. it the, 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 the paper that members got mm -hmm. is very hopeful. It, it does kind of <laughs> create a warm feeling. And yeah, it would maybe be useful to get um, a list of the postcodes that are intended yeah. to be delivered first. I think the postcodes were listed, and they, they, yeah, they there first. was. Um, Grey and the white. Yeah, the yeah. thing. Um, but it, it might be if we can get a a written narrative on that. It might be. Yeah. Sure, there's there's also um, not wishing to rain on the parade, but um, listening to Radio Ulster this morning, there is a an interactive postcode checker mm. for people to see where they're at. But when some people were checking it today, it said you're three years away from service. I'm hoping that's just not been updated while 
Um, it's what went live this morning. I noticed in the papers it does suggest that's the ultimate kind of time envelope. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I suppose that's the other thing would be useful to get in, a, in an update is more detail on how, specifically how the rollout will happen. You know, the, the, the time scales, the areas, and so on. So if we if we look to get that, I think as well that would be much more um, useful. So that again, as, as Mr. Dunn has said, you're in a position to be able to say to constituents and so on. Yeah, you're in this time slot. We we expect things to be rolling Those, your way at this point. I mean, in terms of. Those gaps will be filled a lot quicker than natural gas gaps will. Do you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of just getting the network spread out and stuff like yeah, that. So it's, it's instantaneous, I think, as well. That that's the other thing that people will notice. Once it's there, they will they will notice a lot more quickly. But if we aim to get a regular update and we try and get more information around okay. um, time scaling the rollout with a bit more detail on the areas as they will be taken. At the minute it gives us the full picture. But it's trying to break it down into a timeline more. Mm. We look for that. Good. Okay. Um, John O'Dowd, do you wanted to come in? Yeah, I just in terms of Gordon and your own points about monitoring uh, the delivery of this project, it's obviously a very good news story and it'll be hugely welcomed by those rural communities who have been left behind with having no broadband. But experience tells us that large infrastructure projects like this. Uh, have a habit of running into difficulties mm. and sometimes can run over cost. So I would be keen to know if there is a cost overrun, who's footing that bill? Is it the taxpayer or is it the, the, the company? Um, I have expressed concerns in the past that why this is welcome, we're paying £165 million of taxpayers' money to a private company to deliver a utility to taxpayers who then have to pay for that utility mm -hmm. and the people who make the profit off it are the private company. So it's, it's a business case that uh, to a certain degree doesn't benefit uh, the public purse in the long term. It certainly benefits people who are getting broadband and you can't argue against that, but uh, mm -hmm. it is a significant amount of public investment with no return to the public purse on it. Thank you. So if we organise those... We will do, Chair, we keep, keep that a close check on that. Um, so moving on then, item number six, there's a departmental written briefing, consideration of responses to the DFE consultation on legislation to transpose the EU Gas Directive Amendment 2019-692 and related legislative changes. Um, at page 28 of your table pack, um, there is the DFE consultation paper on the transposition of Gas Directive page 64 of the table pack, there is an SL1 submission for the transposition of gas directive. Um, just to advise members, the department proposals would make a number of amendments to the gas NI order 1996, the energy NI order 2003 and the energy act 2008 in order to transpose where necessary the requirements of the 2019 gas directive amendment, which mainly relate to arrangements for gas pipelines, which connect with a third country outside the European Union provide legislative clarity on arrangements for regulating a gas storage facility cited in the territorial seas adjacent to the north and organising third-party access and compliance with gas directive requirements and make any necessary consequential amendments to the NI energy legislation which will be effective from the end of the transition period on the 31st of December 2020. 
These legislative changes are largely technical in nature and are not anticipated to have any significant immediate impacts. Um, here, the regulations listed in <coughs> SR1 at page 64 are subject to negative resolution procedure before the Assembly. So prior to receiving any analysis or consultation responses, um, unless there are any, uh, so it's to note, sorry for now, prior to receiving any analysis of consultation responses, unless there's any comments that members want to make. Noted. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Item number seven then is SR 2020-251, the Posted Workers Agency Workers Northern Ireland Order 2020. Um, there is a clerk's memo at page 111, and the SR 2020-251, the Posted Workers Agency Workers Order um, Northern Ireland 2020 at page 113. Um, at page 124, there is the Directive EU 2018-957 of the European Parliament and Council of Europe. And at page 133, the Directive 9671-EC of the European Parliament. The related SL1 was agreed by the committee on the 11th of November and there have been no policy changes since then. Um, the purpose of this SR is to transpose amendments to the EU Posting of Workers Directive here. The directive establishes the employment rights and protections that apply to a worker when they are posted as in sent temporarily to another member state of the European Union. The hire of an agency worker will have to inform the agency if the worker is sent to work in an EU state. This SR is required to ensure that legislation here is compliant with EU law during the transition period as required under the terms of the withdrawal agreement. The rule came into operation on the 13th of November, breaking the 21-day rule. Amendments in the SR will expire at the end of the implementation period on the 31st of December. So this um, rule is subject to negative re resolution. So if members are content, I will put the question. That the Committee for the Economy has um, considered SR 2020-251, the Posted Workers Agency Workers Order Northern Ireland 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly, subject to the Examiner of Statutory Rules report. So item number eight then is the SL1, the Further Education Student Support Amendment, etc. EU Exit Regulations NI 2020. There is a clerk's memo at page 140 of your packs and there is correspondence from the DALO at page 141. The department proposes to make this amended statutory rule under powers conferred in it by Article 3132 and 84 of the Education Student Support NI Order 1998. The SR contains amendments to the principal further education support, student support and regulations, the further education student support eligibility regulations NI 2012. It continues the status quo for students taking designated further education courses after the conclusion of the implementation period. The SR will be subject to negative resolution procedure before the Assembly. Um, this is the committee's opportunity to consider the policy laid out in the SL1 as it's not possible to amend once the rule has been um, laid in the Assembly Business Office. So are members content with the um, policy uh, direction? Is there anything? No, Chair, it really is. It's just another one of those continuity beyond the end of the transition period so that um, existing systems that are already there will continue to operate. Okay. So are members content? Great, yes. Item number nine, then, the Education Student Fees and Support Amendment Northern Ireland EU Exit Regulations 2020. 
Um, there's a clerk's memo at page 146 and correspondence from the department at page 147. Um, the department proposes to make this statutory rule under powers conferred in it by articles 3 and 8, 4 of the Education Student Support NI Order 1998 and articles 4, 8 and 14, 4 of the Higher Education NI Order 2005. This SR contains technical amendments to the Sensible Student Support Regulations, the Education Student Support No. 2 Regulations NI 2009 and the regulations which set out the persons and higher education courses eligible for home tuition fees charges in the North, student fees qualifying courses and persons regulation NI 2007 and it continues the status quo for students taking designated higher education courses after the conclusion of the implementation period. The SR will be subject to negative resolution procedure before the Assembly. This is the Committee's opportunity to consider the policy laid out in the SL1 as it is not possible to amend once the rule has been laid in the Assembly Business Office. So are members content to give the policy direction? Great. Thank you, Chair. So moving on then to item number 10, SL1 Transposition of the EU Electricity Recast Directive 2019. There is a clerk's memo at page 82 of your table pack um, and there is correspondence on the SL1 from the department um, at page 84 of your table pack. Um, refer members to the government response to the Electricity Directive Consultation Annex A at page 87 of table pack and to correspondence from the department at page 103 of the table pack. All right, I'm just opening it for myself here. Great. Um, <laughs> the Department proposes to make this statutory rule under powers conferred by Section 2.2 of the European Communities Act 1972 C68. This statutory rule will transpose the Electricity Recast Directive 1 EU 2019-944, the Directive on the Internal Market for Electricity, which applies from 1 January 2021. The aim of the Directive is to outline rules for the generation, transmission, distribution, supply and storage of electricity together with consumer protection aspects aiming to create integrated, completive, consumer-centred, flexible, fair and transparent electricity markets in the EU. The anticipated date that the rule will come into operation is the day after it's made. The SR will be subject to negative resolution procedure before the Assembly. Um, this again is the committee's opportunity to consider the policy set out in the SL1 as it's not possible to amend the rule once it has been mutilated in the Assembly Business Office. Anything you want to add on this one? Chair, no, this is just reminding members that we will continue to be um, within a single electricity and energy market and therefore uh, we continue to apply EU directives that are relevant to that. Um, this one is one that was already there and has to be applied but also it, it allows us to be able to maintain that one going forward into next year. Okay, thank you. So moving on then to correspondence, 11.1, um, um, page 154 of your pack, there is um, Minister's correspondence to excluded NI regarding people who have been excluded from support. So it's for noting unless members have any comments they want to make. So moving on then to um, 11.2, which is at page 156 of your pack. Um, there is correspondence to the clerk, to the clerk from the Committee of Infrastructure. Mm -hmm. 
The committee agreed to write to the Minister for the Economy regarding issues raised during the briefing from Right Boss and Rise Hydrogen and forward the correspondence to the Committee for the Economy. So again, it's to note, unless um, there's any comments. Hi. Um, so page 161 then, um, there's correspondence to the NA Assembly Committee for the Executive Office response to Michael Gove MP's correspondence. The committee accepted and acknowledged that Mr Gove was not in position to give evidence on the work of the NI executive. However, Mr Gove said he'd be happy to provide written evidence on issues related to the future relationship with the EU. The committee has requested written evidence from him on a number of themes. So, are members content to note? Agreed. And to ask the TEU committee to share Mr Gove's response. Mm -hmm. Should be quite interesting. Okay. 11.4 then, page 165, there is correspondence from the Finance Committee um, regarding an update on the ongoing development process for the proposed trust programme. Goes to note for the time being, unless members have any further comments, and obviously it's um, applicable to our yes. earlier discussion yeah. with Nick Vaughan. Yeah, great. Um, page 180 of your packs is correspondence from Velocity, sorry, Velocity Worldwide in relation to NA Digital Funding. Um, to just to seek members' agreement to have an informal meeting with Velocity Worldwide in um, a team to get a greater understanding of the proposed idea for a digital fund and grant scheme. Thank you. Um, page uh, 187 is correspondence from representatives of the Joint Committee of the Northern Ireland Community Energy and Drumlin Wind Energy Cooperative. They would like to present to the committee on the um, issue of community energy. So, um, if members are content, we'll seek an informal meeting. Yes. Thank you. Um, page 188, there's correspondence from the Labour Relations Agency introducing the new incoming Chief Executive, Don Leeson. So, it's to note, um, obviously, we knew Tom was. Yeah, leaving. Tom was retiring, yeah. So, this will be effective from the 1st of December. We, we look for a briefing, I think, probably then, Chair. Um, at page 189 is correspondence from a concerned individual in relation to the House Party in the Holy Land, where while COVID restrictions were in place, so it's for members to note. And then at page 191, it is the 28th report of the Examiner of Statutory Rules. Um, again, to note unless members have any comments. Mm -hmm. Right. Page 106 of table pack, then there is um, correspondence to the clerk to um, the clerk memo in relation to the licensing registration of clubs amendment <coughs> bill and asking for comments from all statutory committees. So um, the clerk will bring back the response. Yeah, sure, we have a lot of relevant stakeholders with this, so what we'll do is we'll collate uh, views and we'll bring that back for members' agreement um, to respond to the. Um, Communities Committee. Okay. Around. Um, page 107 then of your table pack, there is an oral statement to the Assembly by Minister Carol McKillen on the 17th of November on the discretionary support self-isolation front. So again, it's to note unless there's any yep. comments. Um, page 110 of table pack, there's a statement from Minister Putz in relation to the 16th British Irish Council Ministerial Meeting. So again, just to note unless yes, members great. Page 115 of the table pack, there's a statement from DERA in regards to basic payment scheme simplification and the direction of travel for future agricultural policy, um, including support payments. So again, it's to note unless members have any comments. Fine. I think we did it all this yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we get sent a lot of these things and it's part of our 
um, procedures to whatever we get, you get to see. Mm. Page 126 of your table pack, there's correspondence with an individual regarding the number of COVID-19 cases within Ulster University. So again, it's to note, unless members have any comments. Um, page 129 of the table pack, there's correspondence from an individual regarding the number of COVID-19 cases within Queen's. So again, members content to note. Read. Page 131 of the table pack, there's correspondence from Brian Donaldson um, of Excluded NI in relation to the verification for company directors um, that missed out on furlough and self-employed income support scheme. So again, this has been shared with the department. Yeah, the, Brian's copying us and anything he's sending to them. Yeah. Nice, so. Grant. So page 132 of your table packed is correspondence from an organisation called Speed Up Britain, who campaign for better mobile connectivity in every part of Britain and the North. The organisation has requested a meeting in order to discuss details of their campaign and its importance to the rollout of 5G and improving rural and urban mobile connectivity across the North. So if members are agreed, we'll set up an informal meeting. Yep. Great. Okay. So forward work programme then is um, item number 12, which is at page 204 of um, your, oh, sorry, excuse me, page 200 of your um, pack. So are members content? I'm sure it's still agreed. Um, and then moving on to any other business. Um, Members probably seen the. Sorry, I have three items. You have two items, Chair. Yeah. Um, the article on BBC News yesterday about um, the the VAT on um, second-hand vehicles. Well, second-hand vehicles, yeah. Yeah. So um, currently, when dealers buy a vehicle from Britain and then sell it here, they only have to pay VAT on the profits on the profit. Sorry, uh, but from January, they'll have to pay VAT on the full price. That they pay for the car coming from Britain, which reduces the profit margins on those vehicles or sees prices rise for consumers. Um, so, for for example, the VAT bill for a car bought for eight grand and sold for ten grand could rise from three hundred and thirty-three pounds to like one thousand six hundred and sixty-six, which is um Britain is a significant source of second-hand cars coming from here, either for auctions or coming off lease. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it's quite concerning. I yeah. think um, a number of second-hand car dealers have been in touch with, with members. Um, from the 1st of January, we will be part of the EU scheme rather than the UK one, and the advice from HMRC states that in line with EU rules, margin schemes involving goods such as the second-hand margin scheme will not usually apply for sales in NI where the stock is purchased in Great Britain. Margin schemes will remain available for sales of goods that are sold sorry, that are purchased in NI or the EU were sold to customers in NI, Great Britain or the EU. Um, the issue has been raised at the Joint Committee, um, the EU-UK body which is overseeing the NI part of the Brexit deal. So the EU would have to agree to set aside this provision of the deal if the new arrangement is not um, to begin in January. So I'm sure they'll be flexible. They have been thus far. No, well, you would say um, that. It's one of those... <laughs> Things were um, unintended consequences, I suppose, and it's it's just it's been flagged up, um, <coughs> and as you say, there, there's now been a fair amount of, amount of contact from um, second-hand car dealers um, who who are, are concerned because they do um, buy a lot of uh, fleet cars. Mm. Yeah, um, options from GB yeah. at the auctions. You see a lot of you see the registrations now. Yeah. There's, there's an awful lot of them, and it would just mean prices would go up. Considerably, um, and it's 
I think at this stage we've become aware of this, but we're not 100% sure who else is aware of it. Um, so it might be um, a case of flying it up to the minister, um, if she's aware of any kind of discussion around this, or at least even at a basic just saying, look, this is, this is going to be an issue for a, a sector here. Um, I suspect she's already hearing about it anyway. I would have thought they'd have been in touch fairly quickly with the department, but it's just getting it out there. Yeah. It's grand. Okay, thank you. That. And then just the other item of business is that in relation to the, the support schemes. Um, obviously, we're expecting Part B to open today. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I'm sure members are still having significant correspondence around Part A. Um, and I, I know the Minister asserted in, in the Chamber the other day that um, you know, we were perhaps conflating the schemes, but I, I know that I can categorically state that the vast majority of the correspondence that I'm still getting is around for those businesses without premises um, and there's a number of um, anomalies that are coming through to me. Um, one example is in relation to um, a photographer who is a photographer of newborns so she's effectively close contact but she has been refused the Part A scheme because she hasn't been directed to close despite the fact that she handles newborn babies. So um, just what would the appeals process be there and it's not quite clear. Another one is in relation to um, gymnastics instructors. So they again haven't been told to close, but they can't operate on a one-to-one -one basis. So it's unclear as to which scheme they will fit into. Are they going to be able to apply to Part A, or will Part B be more applicable? And a further anomaly that has come to me was um, a hairdresser who intended to return from maternity leave this month. So she technically wasn't trading in October. Um, and that is one of the eligibility criteria for yeah. Part A. But you would imagine that maternity would have to... Would have been an exemption. Would have yeah. to be a protection there. Yeah. But it would be useful to seek some clarity around those um, particular suppose, items. Chair, it's, it's what we've seen is you, you once you operate a scheme, that's when the anomalies start to appear um, and the gaps and so on. So it's trying to do what the committee has been doing all along, really, I suppose is highlighting those issues yeah. um, to the department and um, seeking them to be um, closed, if you like the gapping and mapping you talked about before. But members are content, we'd relay issues that we're aware of in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the, the instance you raise is not going to be the only person well, Can I from maternity. put one on the record then, one if there. you could raise it for me, a self-employed insurance broker for life cover, work from an office at home, Business depends on me going out to potential clients' houses to discuss their needs. Yeah. So that means is I can't go to anyone's house because I couldn't do any business. In fact, nothing, nothing has been done since March. It's my client base is <laughs> sorry, I'll not read that. My client base is older than you, LOL. Um, they don't want to take any chances. No. So, you know, but not getting anything. Yeah. And, and that's going to be a, a huge problem too because I know if you've if you've watched any level of television. Um, the, the online and big companies have now stepped in and are pushing really intensive, really intensive advertising during the day when older people are likely to be watching. Mm -hmm. For schemes it is, it's, it's things that people used to do on a local basis, money they used to pay to a local um, business, the co or whatever, yeah. is now kind of, I don't want to say it's scaremongering because that's, that's the term that's constantly being used, but it, it is incredibly intensive advertising. Yes. And people are nervous about, well, you know, maybe I should make a reservation. If you can't 
get that local person because older people generally will want people that trust. one contact. It is they, yeah. they're starting to panic. So there's all sorts of issues that I suspect you couldn't necessarily have planned for, but it's making sure that they're all flagged up to the department. So we gather all those up. Is there, there are they, some of those adverts. You're absolutely right. There are some of those adverts are despicable. It's, you know, yeah. it's you know, ease the burden on your family and all this sort of stuff. And you're some little old person. But it's people at home targeting people feeling, in their fifties. It's yeah. you know feeling vulnerable, and it's it's not nice. It's not nice. Well, we'll we'll gather those up um, and highlight the issues to the department. Also, chair uh, members are content. We look to schedule the minister come back in the next couple of weeks just to, to kind of um, update on where we are with schemes that are running and by that stage hopefully we'll have heard additional um, announcements Chair Mr Stolford Could I ask just related to that and related to the uh, figures that we've been given by the department yeah. one of the things that I do think we need to establish is when these schemes whether it's phase A or phase B come to an end, what is the department's assessment of what the unemployment figure is actually likely to be? Yeah. Because the money is not going to keep coming from London to pay for this, and I think we need to know from the department just the scale of what we're going to be facing into. And um, when you talk about, you know, I mean, the figures that the department have given to us, um, 400 million for the four weeks, and disproportionately affecting uh, women, uh, the lowest paid, etc., etc. Those are very uh, nebulous concepts. I think it would be useful for people to know that the department's assessment of once this support comes to an end, what do they expect the unemployment figure to be? Because at the start of this, there was a figure being bandied around, I think, of 100,000. Mm -hmm. yeah. In addition to that, um, because obviously... I imagine there will be continuing modelling being done now yes. in relation to the additional the um, restrictions. Um, but what is the department's intended response yes. to, to these measures that have been put in place and, and how slightly longer term than the support has been made available for the businesses during the restrictions, what's coming after? If we could get those figures, that would be really helpful. And, and as well, um, what the chair has said, the second part of that as well. We'll, uh, we'll look for that, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, members. So then just the final thing is the time and date of our next meeting, which is next Wednesday morning, and it's back in this room at 10am. Is that right? I just, yeah, I think so. I just feel like something's missing. Did I miss Because it's only 20 past. No. <laughs> well done. It's no, excellent sharing. Went through a lot. It's excellent sharing. Thank, Thank you. you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.